It's funny because we first met when I was very young with a lot of opinions. And then the older I've got and the more work I've done, it's not like I don't have strong opinions or I don't want to be keynoting anymore. I think what I've realized is I truly believe in the power of conversation and what I'm able to do in this role and on the Culture First podcast is hold space for these conversations that I think will change our experience at work. Because when I go back at sort of the pivotal moments in my career, like I mentioned, like you know that event with you or the time that someone took a chance on me in an interview... A powerful conversation isn't about asking better questions. It's about creating a space and a like safety container where you can be seen and heard and someone shows up with interest and curiosity in you and as a generous listener. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Damon Klotz. He has a day job. It's in the HR technology industry. He also runs a podcast. But what I want you to know about Damon more than anything is that he believes that businesses can be a force for good in this world. I have known him for over 11 years and a lot of people mistake optimism for naivete. But here's the deal about Damon. He is savvy. He understands how to build relationships. He understands the world of work. And yet, knowing how nefarious the startup scene can be and knowing how crazy the world of work is, he still believes that people are good, that human resources can make a difference, and that when it comes down to it, culture really matters. I can't say that I'm mentored by a lot of people because I'm a difficult individual, but if there's one person that I learn from, that I grow from, that I actually pay attention to and try to figure out which way the wind blows, it's Damon. And that's why I'm so excited to bring you this conversation with my friend Damon Klotz about why culture first really matters. So sit tight and I'll be right back with more Punk Rock HR. Hey, Damon. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Laurie. Can't wait to have this conversation. Oh my goodness, my friend. It has been a long time coming. It's always fun to do a podcast with a fellow podcaster. And I was trying to think about a jumping off point. Like there's so many stories that we have and we share. Do you want to tell the story of how we met? Yeah. So there's, I guess, the story of how we met online and then the story of how we met in person. So then... I started my HR career when I was like, I was 19 years old, the first time I worked in a HR department. And I realized that there was a bigger world out there of people who I wanted to learn from. I wanted to not just be confined to the people or the proximity that I had. I wanted to go reach out to the world. And so I started connecting with people on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And I was using as much of my spare time to connect with people. And, you know, there was a couple of names that came up often in terms of people that you should be following. And I like to, think of myself as a bit of a rebel, someone who was doing things differently. And you and Bill Borman, you know, Bill Borman with the hat and his crazy style of how he approaches his world and just that one stood out. And then yours with Punk Rock HR, which, you know, come full circle is what we're speaking about again today. So that was the online piece. What year was that? Who I probably started blogging and writing and tweeting about all this in 2009. So a decade ago. Yeah. So long ago. All right. So you're on the other side of the world, connecting with people on the internet, and then we meet. Yeah. So I found myself, you know, as you can tell by my accent, this is not a nasal infection. This is an Australian accent. So I found myself in Australia and backpacking around the world, which is what Australians do, you know, working hard, spending time off. And when I was on one of these backpacking trips, I kind of like heard about this event 
uh, happening. And I think I was in my first year of being a HR graduate. So, you know, working full time on my time off. And I heard about this event called True London. And there I was like, you know, with a backpack and a suitcase and like all these kind of old smelly clothes at the end of a five week trip. And I, I reach out to Neil Morrison. I said, how do I get involved with this event? And he said, you know, speak to Bill and come along. So then I go along to this event. I like buy some new clothes so I can turn up and try to be professional. Then I realized that like it's an unconference. I didn't need to do that. And then Bill goes, you're going to lead a track and you're going to lead a track on the future of HR. And I'm going to put you up against John Sumser and Laurie Ruderman. So there I was as a 21 year old debating the future of HR. And I think from that moment, what I remember most vividly is I feel like you really just saw me and appreciated me and nurtured my ideas and my stories in a way that led me to believe even as a young, naive Australian on the other side of the world, that I had a story and I had a voice and that I should push forward. And I remember at the end of that debate, Bill Borman goes, the future of HR is right here. It's the young man that is speaking. So that was a pinnacle moment in my entire career. Oh my goodness. I remember the bright ideas you had, the enthusiasm you had. And I mean, that was so long ago. I was younger then, still cynical. And it was refreshing to talk to someone who was a pragmatist, which is what Australians are anyway. So that's always lovely. But still a little bit optimistic. And I just really appreciated the perspective that you brought. And over the years, you've taken that energy, you've taken that passion for people and really aligning them with their purpose. And you've done really unique things with it. So every immigrant has an origin story. So you didn't stay in Australia. Like, what's your story? Yeah, you know, I think... There's a big wide world out there and whether you think from a physical perspective or just from an ideas perspective. And I've always wanted to put myself in foreign environments to learn and, and to grow. So I think that's true for my career. I think it's true for the places I've spent time. I, you know, I've been... If I kind of look back at like all the different people or places I've been, it's like, you know, I started off as an L&D team. I was a HR grad. I've been a keynote speaker, a social entrepreneur, a digital strategist, a mental health advocate and early stage startup employee. And that's taken me from Australia to London to Paris to Asia. And now like the last five years living in the United States and, you know, looking back at it, it all makes sense. It all looks like it was all one big path on this journey where it's like I had it all planned out. And if anything, it was following people who um, excited me, following passions and projects that excited me and really trusting my gut to be okay with throwing away expectations or ideas I had about the work I should do and just follow passions and interests. And that's led to a exciting, different, bizarre, and hard to explain career. Well, before we get into the nuances of your career, because believe me, I think you're more interesting than the job you do, although the job you do is terrific. You know, you're an Australian. Are you 30 yet at this point? You turned 30, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're here in this country and you're more American than many Americans I know. (laughs) That's the one thing about you that's really kind of fun to watch. But you're in this country. It's such a pivotal time. What are your feelings? What are your observations? What are you seeing? Yeah, I moved here during the Obama administration and I was actually lucky enough to visit the White House during his time. And what I really didn't realize was that like the White House tour that I was very privileged to be able to do is like there's a welcome video from the Obamas and it's like all all their images are up and it's like very influenced by the people who are sitting at, at the time. And then I've worked through the last four years and it's it's been different. And in some ways, having fluidity in life is powerful because it allows you to not get too hamstrung on expectations. And in other ways, we all need an element of solid foundations. And I think what's been hard as an expat and as a foreigner is like, you know, I'm on a temporary visa and I'm trying to like create a life out here. So it's like, in some ways, I'm like, well done, you've got a great credit score. And in the other ways, like, and you might have to leave tomorrow. So I think it's been 
in some ways, freeing to know that tomorrow could be a brand new day. But it's also, it's you know, it's been hard to plan. And on top of that, working at a fast-growing startup, that's enough of a roller coaster, right, as it is, let alone the uncertainty of being, you know, in a foreign country. So I think it's forced me to be okay with constant change. But it's also like, I'm not going to lie, it's been, it's been quite stressful. I bet, I bet. You know, not only that, I think you've got some expertise just in being an Australian with differences with, you know, Aboriginal culture, like you've seen it play out in your own country. And then you come over here and you see the way that minorities, people of color, members of the LGBTQ plus community are treated. I wonder, what do you see as an Australian? What do you see when you look out at America? I'll share a story about in my second week of joining Coltramp, we had just hired two employees. You know, I was one of the first, like I think I was employee 13 and we'd hired two Americans and we all, they flew out. I was still in Australia and they came out to onboard together. We had the whole company, all 15 of us, you know, together in one room at the start. And my colleague and good friend said for an, a country that was, you know, one of the oldest countries of indigenous members in the world, he goes, I don't see any black people. And to me, that was, you know, I'd spent time in remote Aboriginal communities when I worked in the public healthcare sector and had gone out to islands where you need to be invited on. And I'd seen sort of how separated the indigenous population had become in Australia. And when you ask Australians, can you name me a successful indigenous person? They might name like a famous sports person, but they might struggle to name a famous business person. So I think what I've realized is Australia's done a really poor job of supporting our indigenous people. And what I'm seeing in America is that what I'm seeing over the last few years is I think people of color and black people in America are a lot more visible, but they haven't had the same opportunities. For me, you know, I'm coming from a place of privilege as a straight white male. I've had a lot of great opportunities in my life. I've been able to get a college degree and, um, you know, people don't question me when I'm operating in society. And I'm trying to use the platform and the privilege that I have to amplify the voices and the stories of other people now because there's been enough privilege in my life that I don't need any more access. So that's something that I'm super conscious of and still on a, on a very long journey of education to go. Well, you've certainly put yourself in this unique position where you have alignment between your career and some of the things that are most important to you. I mean, you've got this interesting role at CultureAmp and it's allowed you to advocate for issues that you believe in and also talk to people who can help educate and inform. So talk a little bit about what you're doing and what your company is doing right now in the marketplace. Yeah, so... When I think about like what role should organizations play in improving the world around us? And, you know, there's what you can do from a service perspective is what you can do from your product perspective. And then there's just like, what is the dent in the universe that as a company you think you can actually do? And, you know, I've spoken a lot about CEOs can play a certain role, but they also have a lot of obligations around what they can say and what they should stand up for. And then there's what the organization can do. And I guess why I mentioned that is I'm in this unique position where they've created like a thought leadership role, which is not a C-suite role. It's not the CEO. It's not a founder who like needs something extra to do as their chief evangelist officer. It's someone who spent time in the seat of the practitioner who connects the dots between a lot of different stories and is trusted. Like one of the values of Coltramp is trusted people to own decisions. You know, they're trusting me to just create containers and conversations around the things we need to be talking about at work. So I think incredible platform to have real conversations around politics and race and belonging and what does high performance look like and mental health. So how this role really came to be is like I'd been at Coltramp for four years. You know, I was a, a fully vested startup employee. I had done every job un under the sun. And then my CEO, Didier Elzinga, sort of said, like, what would it look like if you to spend four more years at a company like this? Mm. And, you know, he said, throw out everything you've done. Like, you don't have to do any of that again. If you could just do it like from today. And then it's funny because we first met when I was very young with a lot of opinions. And then 
the older I've got and the more work I've done, it's not like I don't have strong opinions or I don't want to be keynoting anymore. I think what I've realized is I truly believe in the power of conversation and what I'm able to do in this role and on the Culture First podcast is hold space for these conversations that I think will change our experience at work. Because when I go back at sort of the pivotal moments in my career, like I mentioned, like you know that event with you or the time that someone took a chance on me in an interview, a powerful conversation isn't about asking better questions. It's about creating a space and a like safety container where you can be seen and heard and someone shows up with interest and curiosity in you and as a generous listener. And the older I've got and the more I've spent time in my career, you'd think I'd be out there trying to like have a famous keynote or a TED talk. And if anything, I'm shutting up more and I'm just being a generous listener and I'm trying to show up with curiosity for other people to amplify their stories. Well, I think that's what I appreciate so much in your podcast. I mean, you are a wonderful listener. You ask terrific questions, but you also lead your guests on a really interesting journey where they talk about things that are unexpected. And you do it with this, I think, point of view that culture matters. Like that just is, it just permeates every conversation. And for me, I really come from this perspective, this hermeneutic where I think, culture is a fake construct. And yet here I am listening to your podcast and loving it and cheering it on. So I wonder if we can talk about culture for a moment, because I'm really not cynical about it. I think organizations have behaviors, sentiments, and atmosphere that kind of comes together. But I think calling it culture does a disservice to the word culture. And I also believe that the behaviors, the sentiment, the attitudes come from the top. And so it's almost disingenuous to tell people you can influence a culture when by and large, the default behaviors really reflect what the executive leadership team believes. So I want to stop right there. Can you tell me what you mean by culture and why I might be mistaken? Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head with it. It's a word that has so many meanings outside of the work context that when we use it at work, it's kind of easy just to throw it away as something that just isn't like as important as something like a metric or something that you can point to or something, you know, like a financial report or profit and loss. It's like we understand what those mean in the context of business. When we say culture, it's like it can mean so many different things to so many different people from the culture of a country, from a subculture, a community culture. So I think when I think about it, if I was to try to boil it down to what it is, it is a set of beliefs, expectations, structures, and intentions around how a group of people decide to gather that's actualized through behaviors. And I think it can exist at an organizational level. It should exist at like what is the beliefs and values of a company. And I also believe culture can exist within a team and within a small project as well. So we spend a lot of time talking about what we do at work, I believe we don't spend as much time focusing on how we're working. You know, who are the people that were in the room? Who are the people not in the room? Who are the decision makers? Why are they decision makers? How are we going to make decisions? Have we agreed upon that? Have we got expectations around, you know, the behaviors to get to the goals? Is it okay to cheat to get to the goal? Is it not okay? Are we willing to sacrifice ethics for these things? I mean, these are all the things that make up a culture of a team, culture of a project, a culture of an organization. But to me, It's around what are your expectations? What are the things that you say, this is how we're going to do this? And then do they get actualized with behaviors? And are those behaviors something that can be repeatable because it's a good part of the culture? And if you don't want to repeat them, is it something that you're willing to change? You know, the work around culture over the past five or 10 years has also often been centered around people 
in positions of leadership trying to make themselves feel better about the work environment. And those individuals are often white. I mean, human resources is a majority white profession, and they're having most of the conversations around culture. And I think what we end up with is this weird infantilization of the workforce, right? We want to create a culture. We want to do something for them instead of inviting them in to really determine how they work and what the circumstances of the work environment are. And I really worry that in this time, in this moment, when we have an opportunity to change, we're going to continue with this default behavior of having these paternalistic conversations about culture and not really move the ball forward. So what are you seeing out there that makes you optimistic? Is anybody doing it right? I mean, I know CultureAmp is leading some of this. How does it even work? Where do we get started with this work? Yeah, so... I'm going to say this word probably a hundred more times and I, I say it all the time. I'm fascinated by the construct of conversations. And I think with culture and with values and these things, what you were saying was kind of like leadership and companies having a one-way conversation about the culture. It's like, here's this thing, you know, and like you can have really strong foundations and beliefs. Like Patagonia is a company who's actually like, it's disguised as a company. It's really like, it's a movement. It's a movement to create a better environmental society. It just happens to have a company. So like strong culture, strong values and beliefs are important, but they don't not include their employees in that journey. They don't ask them what part of this mission excites you? What part of improving you know, the environment do you want to focus on? And it's that trust between opening up a dialogue and a powerful conversation between the entity, the company, the values, whatever structure, the leadership and the people and actually saying, yes, we have some things that we believe in, but we're willing to also unearth new beliefs from you. And when I think about how does that map to a term that gets used over time in the HR circles around you know, employee experience, it's not about where an employee is on that life cycle. And you know, it's really about on that day, does an employee feel seen and heard? Do the values resonate? Are they able to show up? Are their behaviors being actualized in a way that where they get compensated and recognized for it? Can they show up with authenticity without fear of repercussion because of you know their lived experience? And to me, that's a two-way conversation with culture. That is somewhere where it's actually like, this is a dialogue. It's an invitation for you to come and do your best work with whatever means you need. And it's not a free-for-all. Like This is not the freelance economy. This is under the structure of a company. Well, you know, I think there's a real strong attraction for me to that vision of culture. But I also recognize in the real world, we have a disposition to go fast, right? Everybody wants to move quickly. And I think leaders are unwilling to slow down and also to be humble. And I worry about that. I think we're going to have a moment in time where they will slow down and they will listen. But I worry that the default behaviors will kick back into gear and they'll assume that everything's been fixed, just like Me Too was fixed and gay marriage was fixed. And we're moving on, right? And we're not racist anymore because we had a Black president. We had this conversation about George Floyd. And we're going to get back into productivity discussions and performance discussions, and we're going to blow it. I don't know. Are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future? I would like to believe that there's a future out there where leaders are willing to unlearn, to be vulnerable, and to have conversations about topics when they're not topical. That, to me, is the idea of a culture-first company. A leader who's looking at the dynamics of their team or the things that are playing out, not because it's on the front page of the news right now, not because it's trending on Twitter, not because there's a societal movement. Yes, we need to address those things when they happen. But are you willing to take a stance? Are you willing to say that you're wrong about something? Are you willing to admit that you don't know enough to get curious to improve the experience your team members have on a subject that's important to them on that day? And you know, to me, when I think about the best leaders, it's like they've seen me for where I'm at. 
whether it's where I'm at in my career, where I'm at in that week, where I'm at in that hour. And they're willing to have a conversation about improving my experience as a in a workplace, but also as a human, right? Like, what do you need? And you just have to look at what's happened to D&I budgets over, you know, that they were massively cut during an economic recession only to be then tripled a month later because if you didn't do it, if you didn't make a statement, if you didn't have an action plan, then you know that was going to have a financial impact on your company. And that's what most people have responded to. I would love to see leaders respond to the topics because their team members need them to show up for them, not just because society is asking them to. You know, I think about all the HR leaders that you and I have met out on the road and that you work with at CultureAmp. And there are definitely forward-thinking HR leaders out there who care about social justice and care about individuals at work. And then there are people who, for whatever reason, don't have the time, don't have the budget, don't have the resources, and they're barely getting by in HR. And I think when they listen to a conversation about culture and going slow and having non-topical conversations when it's inconvenient, they're like, yeah, right. Give me a break. So do you have anybody in mind when you think about that person? Because I do. And I mean, my heart breaks for them because I think they ought to get the hell out of HR, (laughs) right? But I wonder, do you have a reaction to that? Have you worked with individuals like that? What do you think about that? I think when you were talking about that, I was going back to like the idea of there's you know, the culture and the org level. And then there's like what you can create within a team. And even in like a dysfunctional company, even in a place where it's like the company isn't going to be famous. It is not going to have a big dent in the universe. It's just, it exists. It builds a product. People use it. It'll trickle along for decades. There can still be a moment inside of that company, whether it's the HR person or it's it's a team lead who can create powerful moments for people who can show up for employees. And we've democratized access to incredible information and inspiration. And and there's nothing stopping anyone from around the world from saying like, I'm willing to be the change I want to see. I'm willing to do something different. There might not be an L&D program at your company that's going to make you an inspiring or conscious leader. Doesn't mean you can't go learn that with a YouTube video and bring that into your team and change the experience for people. Because my first corporate experience was a dysfunctional, bureaucratic government department of 65,000 employees. And like, I had an incredible leader who showed up and backed me and like hired me for potential, not for anything that was on my resume and fundamentally changed the course of my life. And like, we can all be that for someone, even if the system, even if the structure, even if the company isn't the inspiring best places to work list winner. Yeah, that's really well said. You know, it's fun that you're talking about this golden age of learning that we're in because I'm a big advocate. Like you, anything you want to know, you can find out. You want to be a lawyer, you can all but be a lawyer for free. The only thing you need to pay for is to go take the bar exam and all the different licenses and certifications. You can do whatever you want. The information is out there. I wonder what Culture Amp is doing to create libraries of content that are useful and are accessible, whether or not you have a budget. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the things that I think initially drew me to the company was like this fundamental belief at the start that community is important, not a community of customers, not a community of people of like super users or getting some badge to say you're certified in you know XYZ product, like a genuine interest in the type of people who want to be improving the world of work. And it was community that actually impacted my career. It was a networking event where I got that job in that HR department. It was that event in you know true london where i met people like you who have opened up my mind and it's around investing in structures of people to come together and you know one of the roles that i had at culture was head of community and one 
of the promises I wanted to make to the company is I wanted to build the community that I wished existed when I was a practitioner because I believe if it did exist, I would still be a practitioner. There's a reason people like you and I left because we weren't seeing the things that, that we wanted. And so then we go build those things. So I've gathered our customers together. I've gathered online communities together. But the story that really resonates with me is a story from online content we've created from open sourcing our you know questions that you want to be running by creating Slack communities, by running conferences, heavily investing in events. There was a story of a two-person HR team who was trying to do really groundbreaking work and like wanting to show up for their employees, but you know, did have budget constraints, did have these, you know, resource constraints. And they said to me, what you've created, the system of support around us has made our two-person HR team feel like a three-person HR team. Wow. Practically doubled their output then. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, what are you willing to do to further other people? And I think you know, whether it's just how I was brought up or the experiences that I've had, it's like, as Minda Hartz, who I'm a big fan of, says, you know, success is not a solo sport. Like, we don't get to these platforms and these places of pride in our work on our own. You know, some people do literally like leave a rubble of wake, you know, behind them. And they're not the people that we want to work with. And for me, I've been lifted up on the shoulders of giants all along the way. So it's like investing back in community and like our culturefirst.com website and open sourcing all this material and also not saying that we've got all the answers. It's around amplifying the voices of other people who are also doing good work. Right. I love that. Well, you know, as we start to wrap up the conversation, I want to know what you see moving forward. And I know, I mean, you're just one man, you don't have a crystal ball, but when you look out in the world of culture and human resources and corporations, like what are you optimistic about and what worries you? Mm. I guess what worries me is it continues to be a profession that gets stretched so many ways and being asked to show up in so many different situations, many of which we've never been trained in. Like we weren't trained in public healthcare policy and HR leaders around the world have been trying to work out what the restrictions mean for their employees. You know, we're not trained as architects yet. We're trying to work out how to space out offices right now. And, you know, we're all looking to advance ourselves, advance our career, advance the profession. And to do that, you know, there's an element of having the breadth that allows us to, you know, be in many rooms. And then there's also the need to be super specialized and like an expert in things so that we get respected. So I worry that as the world becomes more complex, as society continues to test us in all these different ways, that will we get stretched too thin and will we be able to grow as a profession? So that's a worry. But I guess what excites me is when I look at the first 100 customers who were on that logo wall of Coltramp when, when I joined, you know, that was some of the most progressive, culture-first, inspiring companies. And they were the ones that, as a young professional in Australia, if I had a chance to meet one person from one of those companies, it was like a great month. Because I was like, wow, like, how do you do what you do? And how do I learn? Now, what we're seeing is we all know that like the Fortune 500 recycles all the time. And we're unlearning and getting rid of the companies whose practices don't serve society, don't serve our employee experience and don't serve humanity. And the new ones that are coming up are really, they're being led by culture first CEOs. And what I'm seeing is you know, CPOs being hired much earlier and investing in the containers and the structure of what it means for someone to truly have a great experience at work. And it might take time, but as we get rid of the companies that are doing you know terrible to the world and to the people they're asking to work for them, I'm hoping that more of those stories become less of a... That's an interesting in case study on someone's website and more of a, oh, I know someone who works at a company like that. And isn't it inspiring that I don't need to think too hard for that to be true? Yeah. 
Well, Damon, I continue to learn from you. I think a lot of people pay lip service to mentorship and reverse mentorship, but you're someone who has always given me a lot to think about and who has informed my opinion and challenged me as well. So I appreciate you just being present and having this conversation with me. I appreciate you sticking with me all these years and being a part of my professional life and being a friend. And I look forward to the next time I get to see you in real life. Yeah, some of my best memories were the events where we all got together and like have these conversations and whether it's in a structured format like a podcast or an unstructured after work event, it's like I said, we are one conversation away, I think, from unlocking a future opportunity or more meaning in our work or just the inspiration that we need. And I think the role that you and I can play for so many other people is we can show up as a generous listener and show up with deep curiosity and interest in the people that we get to interview. Because honestly, sometimes it takes someone else to ask us the question for us to really understand the power and the belief that we have inside of ourselves. So thank you for doing that for the entire HR industry for so long because we all need it. We all need it. Well, thanks again. And we're going to have all of your information in our show notes. So we won't ask you to go through that litany of links and all that good stuff. But thanks again for showing up tonight. No worries. Thanks, Laura. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Damon Klotz. Gosh, I love that guy. You know, immigrants really do make it happen. And we need more Damons in America. That's for certain. If you want to learn more about the Culture First podcast or all of the things that Damon has going on, head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-122. As always, this week's episode of Punk Rock HR was produced by Danny Osmond at Emerald City Productions. I know you want a podcast, so head on over to emeraldcitypro.com for more information and free tools, tips, and resources. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.